Hello and welcome to episode 233 of the In Squash podcast. And you don't want to miss this one. I'm your host, Jerry Gibson, uh, a man who is as passionate, passionate about life and passionate about uh, the game of squash than anyone that I know. Rob Owen is on with us today. And that passion reflects in, uh, as I said, just about everything that he does. And it also reflects in the in the great results that his players uh, that work with him in his stable have produced. We have to look no further than uh, world number two, former world number one, Paul Cole. Uh, he's also got S.J. Perry, Dimitri Steinman, Jazz Hutton. Uh, former, uh, formerly, he's had Joel Macon, George Parker, uh, several other players I know amongst them as well that are all producing tremendous squash these days. And we talk about all of that, but we also talk about the uh, squash documentary uh, on his life on squash skills. We take a look at that in the beginning and uh, and what uh, that sort of brought out. Uh, there was a lot of footage there and a lot of commentary from the likes of uh, people like, uh, well, the players that I just mentioned in the stable, but also Jonah Barrington. And uh, Rob is very proud of Jonah, having Jonah in his corner, more like, like a father figure to him. And we talk a fair bit about that. We also talk about uh, growing the game of squash. And it was he, uh, along with uh, Peter Marshall, Danny Lee, Laura Massaro, and Nick Matthew, have set up the ind- Independent Squash Minds, and he fleshes that out a bit for us and how uh, they're looking into and their plans uh, are what their plans are in terms of growing the game. Uh, we also uh, get his thoughts on the outdoor squash uh, venues that we've had uh, recently. Uh, most recently, obviously, in uh, Cairo, outside the pyramids, there were issues there, and Rob has his thoughts on that. Also, uh, England's impressive result at the uh, World Junior Teams uh, uh, there with the men winning it, and Rob has uh, had a hand in coaching several of the juniors uh, along the way. And we talk about that and so many other great uh, topics here. You don't want to miss this. But before we get started, just want to say, a quick word about our sponsor, Open Squash. Uh, they're a New York-based nonprofit dedicated to bringing thousands of new people into the sport by making it more accessible and more affordable for everyone. One of the ways Open Squash fulfills this mission is through their Junior Scholarship Fund, which helps support 25% of juniors with financial aid. To this end, Open Squash recently held its annual fundraiser, which was just over a week ago, and it included the likes of Open Squash sponsored players like Ali Farag and Victor Quinn. And Cleve Miller uh, will be coming on the podcast towards the end of this week to flesh this and the entire Open Squash vision out on the podcast. Please take a look at their website, Open Squash. Org. And let's get on into this episode 233 with Rob Owen. Right. Well, Rob, uh, it's fantastic to have you back on. Uh, I really appreciate your time and, and appreciate you doing this. Uh, how's everything? Uh, you must be uh, prepping now for, for the U.S. Open. Yeah, hi, Jerry. Um, good to hear from you. Um, that was the quickest introduction you've ever done in your life, I think, for 230 podcasts. But uh, no, all good. Um, U.S. Open... I fly out tomorrow, you know, a lot of players now, I've got at least five players generally playing these events, um, and it could be six or seven pretty soon, um, young Katie Manif, and uh, he's shooting at the rankings quickly, and a couple of others as well, um, so yeah, straight into the US Open, five practice courts on Friday in a row, um, Jazz Hutton actually said, great news, but you five practice courts in a row, I thought that's pretty pretty terrible news, but uh, looking forward to it, and it's going to be very interesting going there, watching the squash live, which is always a little different, isn't it? 
Absolutely. Yeah. And, and in terms of, you know, the five practice courts in a row, I, I watched uh, if I were a betting man and there's a lot of practice footage on there and you don't hold back, you go all out in those uh, practice sessions. So I, I can uh, just imagine how you uh, might be feeling uh, heading into five in a row. One of the things I always love is a high intensity. And I just believe that if I haven't got a high intensity, what players, what chance my players got of having a high intensity? So it's absolutely critical to me that coaches are high intensity. Not too much talking. You get on there and you can talk while you're feeding. Um, and I'm feeding quickly and making the sessions real, real life like a match. Yeah, I really enjoy it. Uh, if anyone out there listening hasn't seen it yet, it's on Squash Skills. It's the uh, it's called If I Were a Betting Man. It's a documentary on uh, the playing career and the coaching career and the life of uh, this man right here, Rob Owen. And it's a fantastic uh, doc. I, I highly recommend it. There's so much on there that we could talk about, Rob. But uh, I've had I have to pick pick my spots here. The first thing, obviously. Uh, you know, all the uh, the great Jonah Barrington, uh, and uh, he does he describes your sort of your coaching and your playing. Uh, he was your, obviously your coach when you were young. So uh, Jonah described coaching you in those early days as a massive uh, experience. So how did Jonah get you to embrace the game of squash and, uh, and reach your potential uh, at that time when you were young? I met Jonah at a young age. I say young. I was probably 15, 16. Um, I started playing regularly at 17. Um, I was lucky enough to be able to, to have a decent game with him. Um, and I just, he was a mentor. He was a friend. Um, he was a father figure. He, he encompassed many things to me. But the one thing he made me do was absolutely love squash. He made me embrace squash. He helped me to reach, partly reach my potential. Um, he inspired me to love the sport every day. Um, and he had new dimensions to sport. Um, he opened my mind to the possibilities. And he made me think about squash in a very different way to how I thought about it before, strategically. Um, every part of the game and he was just incredible to be around I mean I discussed it at length in my documentary he talked about me in a, in a way he's never really, I've heard him talk about me before which is very nice and Jerry one thing I've always had is a loyalty to people and an appreciativeness for people who helped me when I was young um, there's a guy I still meet now for a beer on a Friday he used to drive me around a little bit since I've never forgotten people who helped me and I've never forgotten Jonah Barrington you wouldn't forget Jonah Barrington but he was just yeah, there was an amazing buzz about squash in the 80s then with all people playing and he introduced me to that and you wanted to be part of it he just drew you in um, and that's a skill it's and I always try to you know be enthusiastic about the game and draw people in and get people loving it and so my players um, add new dimensions to how they think about the game um, and really a lot of the stuff I, I do now is thanks to Jonah. I've obviously got my own slant on it slightly. Um, I've, I've got many different slants in the game, looking at many different ways, different players. But Jonah was the one that really was the inspiration behind everything I did originally. Uh, I mean, the stuff that he had, the comments he had about you as, as a player and uh, now what you're doing as a coach uh, must have uh, made you, as you said, it must have made you feel uh, fantastic to hear him speak in those terms of you. Uh, what was uh, back then? He talked a little bit about you know maybe you were a little bit go you were off the rails a little bit. Uh, but how how what did he do exactly to maybe help you find your way at that time? By like the way, he said I used to be off the rails then, Jerry. Because I'm completely off the rails now. Um, I've never really been, I've never really on the rails, which is an advantage to in some ways. I think interestingly, you know, I probably never reached the full potential for various reasons of my squash career. Um, and interestingly, again, I, I don't coach anything how I used to play the game. Um, and I think that's an advantage of trying to make players in their own mould. I never did that. And that's everyone's an in individual. Um, you know, I'm, I like the discipline of the sport um, and you need discipline in life. 
um, whatever you're doing. Um, but the fact that I was the way I was, and I got in a lot of trouble, you know, I, I think you mentioned to me before, I had three bands, and all of them well-deserved, by the way, um, for various things, all the way from fighting to being rude to people. I still am rude to people. Um, I don't fight quite as much as I used to, Jerry, but um, just I try and keep down to once a week now. Yeah. Um, but generally, um, you know, it's, I, I, those issues and the way I thought about the game and also sometimes not being, being very good, but not being the very best. I knew what was needed to be the very best. But I think it's an advantage as well. You've played the great players. You've seen what they've done. You've analysed this. And I, I always had a very analytical game. As you know, I was a chess player first, really, before um, squash. And that's how I always looked at sports. Well, squash is uh, is uh, chess on wheels, as uh, as we know, and uh, I guess that that's sort of how you you came to be such a, an analytical about the game. But uh, in the in the documentary as well, you we talk a lot about your co- you talk a lot about your coaching approach, and uh, you describe it as uh, sort of as very different from what other coaches are doing out there right now. So, could you sort of uh, uh, flesh that out for us? What what do you mean by that? Well, to be honest, my coaching, I think, is very simple. But like anything simple, if you don't see it, it can be very complicated. So I, I, break, I break the swing down, I break the technical side of things down into very simple areas, movements, um, the mental side, strategy. Um, and I, I, without a doubt, I haven't met anybody yet who thinks about the game where I think about it. Um, um, there's, there's certain people out there who are thinking differently. Um, um, but I, I've, I've just thought about so many different aspects of the game and I've looked at other people's points of view and different points of view. So I've thought about the height you hit the ball, the pace, um, the movement, the different types of movement you have for different characters and where you want to be, exactly where you want to hit the ball. There's some real fundamentals that when I've met, I've yet to meet a coach, um, there's, there's one or two I can name, but I've, basically I haven't really met any coach that have understood all the fundamental aspects of ball striking, um, technical ability, movement, and then the strategy and the mental side of the game as well. And they're just not looking at things in the right way. So I've tried to simplify it. And I found that when I had, I had, I had two players come to me recently, they'd been the guy who was a national. They didn't know the grip right. I mean, to me, it's a fundamental, you know, the two kids. And one, what, I remember mean, saying to this guy a few years ago, he never changed his forehand. When I mean, the week, his forehand had completely changed. Um, some simple things. And it might not necessarily, sometimes it's not the swing. So a coach say, well, his forehand's not really good, or swing's not right. But actually, it's the footwork's the problem. The feet aren't in position, the swing will change, and you're having to adapt. The swing because the feet's not position, and it could also be vice versa. The swing might be no good, which one footwork's not not right. They go hand in hand, so it might not be the swing. The swing might not be the problem; it might be the footwork, and it's saying vice versa. So people need to look at things and actually identify the problem, and then know how to solve it. Right on. Uh, there was one part in the documentary that I thought was really fascinating. You were talking about uh, how you struggled to teach this one player, or I, I, I don't think you mentioned who it was, a, a little bit about deception. So you you taught them in, in a different way so that sort of indirectly they were able to be deceptive without having to explain it. Deception to me is having the same swing for three or four different shots um, with, with exact, and you can get to the front left and you can a straight drop. Trickle boast, straight driver, cross court drive. That's deception. Um, and it might not be the guy doesn't necessarily know, go the wrong way. It's just that he doesn't actually know the ball's going. Sometimes he will go the wrong way. And you can teach that sort of stuff very simply. It's about getting to position early. All of a sudden, if you're there early to rack it up and the ball hasn't reached you yet, guess what? You're holding the ball. That's hold. And you can do that very successfully and very simply. So most of my players actually hold the ball. And, and I've never seen a coach um, teach it, apart from Rodney Martin. I can teach a hold very quickly. I had a young lad. The other day, he literally just started two weeks. He suddenly sent someone the wrong way, and he didn't even realize he'd done it. 
he hit crossfall drive and the other guy went charging to the side. Um, so that's very satisfying because his racket was up, his feet position, he had the option to hit both and he just chose the other one. Um, but it looked exactly the same and the guy went the wrong way and he, and he couldn't believe it. The bloke turned around and smiled and I, I said, what are you smiling at, mate? You know, he said, well, I've said the wrong way. I said, well, you know, brilliant. And they sort of, they, they just get it quickly like that. And all of a sudden, deception comes in and they realise they're doing it. People who try and be deceptive generally aren't. That's my rule. You know, so there's lots of forms of deception and it doesn't work consistently either. So people who do this massive big swing and a slow drop shot, it tends to be terrible. You know, occasionally it'll work one in 10 and people see spectacular, but people who try and be deceptive generally aren't deceptive. Um, you know, I, I'm reasonably deceptive and people struggle to read me, um, but I'm also not trying to be deceptive at all. It's just a, it's a natural thing as part of the swing and part of the movement. Yeah, it's, I guess, it, uh, like you say a lot in the, the documentary, it's sort of a byproduct of, of, uh, of good footwork, isn't it? Good footwork and good technique mm. will we'll, we'll bring about deception and understanding the, the various options you have. So you teach people to open their mind to actually see the options in different spaces. And once they become aware of the space, they're there. And by getting onto the ball in a certain position, you can create a space in another position. You know, and if you take the ball, generally, if you take a ball before the other person's back on the tee, a space will be created because it might be a space front left, it might be back left. And by creating one space, you generally create another space because then the opponent's then trying to protect that space that's been created and thereby creating another space by moving quickly in the wrong, in the wrong direction or to the ball where they think the space is and therefore there's another space. And again, this is very simple stuff to me, but it's probably sounding a little bit complicated to you, but it's not. Mm, yeah. Uh, Never heard anybody uh, talk about it. Have you ever heard anybody talk about that before, Jerry? Uh, not, not in those terms, no. No, well, there you go. You learned something today. I'm going to learn something for sure. Uh, I'll have to go it's back and well. do it again. Uh, but uh, your friend, uh, your friend Rob Wright, he, and he was fantastic uh, on the documentary. Uh, he had plenty of uh, plaudits and also some great anecdotes about your time spent with him. Uh, he said one of your um, one of your greatest strengths as a player and now as a coach is uh, to spot weaknesses in a player. Uh, so does this ability to identify your, your players' weaknesses, like the players that you're coaching, uh, stem from your early days spotting your opposition's weaknesses? I, I think that goes without saying, probably. Uh, but uh, when and how uh, did that part of your squash brain uh, develop? First of all, it's very nice to talk about that because Rob is one of the best betting brains in the, in the country. You know, he's the Times tipster. Um, semi-professional gambling is one of the best betting brains in the country so he's all about strategy and, which is one of the reasons we clicked um, very early days we got on very well we discussed you know the mathematics of it the, the probability of things happening um, and he realised pretty quickly I, had a, I was obviously betting this at that stage but and I brought back to my squash so from a very early age I looked at squash differently um, I looked at probability I looked at patterns I looked at strategy a lot um, and I was doing, and that was part of the chess thing, you know. I, and I, I also thought two or three shots in front. I thought if you play a three or make both, they have to play cross court in a certain position. There, you go on to the next volley on your forehand. That goes down the wall. They charge back, and then you play a volley boast, for example, or a straight drop. So think of those patterns ahead. I don't think there's many people talking about that sort of thing. And you'll be, be you'll be amazed if you actually watch a match next time, Jared. How many patterns occur again and again? And certain players will. They always have a pattern. Even random people, the pattern may be random, but there is a pattern. Um, and people who are sometimes very deceptive in a walk in a certain area, they'll do the same thing again and again. Um, so if you watch closely for these patterns, you can see it, and that can be a weakness. Uh, once you realise and identify the patterns, you can understand what shot you're going to play, all the options, and you can 
there's no point being on the tee if the bloke's not going to hit the ball down the cross court, for example. Just stand across like someone like Ali Frag will stand across the backhand side. He knows he's not going cross court, so he'll step across. So he's looking at patterns. You know, one thing like Paul, for example, was to teach him how to hit cross court when they weren't expecting it. So the pattern was broken. Mm. Um, so that's that sort of interesting sort of strategy things I always looked at from a very young age. And that's one of the things I love because it's a, it's, it's a challenge, isn't it? It's, it's a mental challenge in trying to work out what someone's going to do, work out what their strengths are, work out where they're weak. You know, I was probably the first person really to, to really use that sort of height against my family, um, which is one of the great skills in the game, which has lost a little bit. I mean, I always loved watching someone like Nick Massey play because laterally in his career, he used to heighten the court brilliantly well against Mohammed and people, slow them down and mix the pace up. And that wasn't a negative shot, by the way. That was a, a really positive thing Nick did. You know, some people seem to think it's, it's a bit boring hitting lobs, you know, these beautiful lobs and things. And it's one of the great skills of the game. Um, same as a beautiful drop shot. You know, these are subtleties. And I love the subtleties of the game and the skills. And I always want to encourage my players to, to use that. Yeah, Peter Nickel did that really well uh, uh, as well. He used to lift the ball uh, extremely well. And that would, you know, a lot of people thought his game was boring, but that enabled him to, that opened the, the court up for him. And he used that little flick, uh, backhand flick fake uh, that he used to, that he employed at the end of his career quite a bit. Yeah, look, I, th- I think you know, even when I coach Joel, people don't think Joel was very, was, 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 uh, very skillful, but there's a great skill in being a defensive player. It's a skill, like being an attacking player, it is very skillful. Often those defensive guys are actually more skillful because to get a ball back tight under pressure is a, and to a perfect length um, or lift the ball is a fantastic skill. Um, it's not boring at all, but I mean, people don't understand um, Maybe they think that's a bit boring, but they want to see cross court nicks. But anybody that can do that when there's fresh air around the ball, just slam the ball, slam dunk it, cross court nick. It generally is a terrible shot. Um, but hitting a perfect lob and you know, good drops and tight balls, I mean, hitting a perfect length at different paces, um, different heights of the front ball, someone like James Walshaw, is an unbelievable skill and incredibly difficult to do. And unless you play the game at that level and you're under pressure doing that, you don't quite realize how difficult that is because everything's going to be perfect. You know, absolutely perfect. So it's it's not a lost skill, but the best players have always done that. And that doesn't matter, you know, whether it's it's this year or, or 40 years ago. You know, Jonah Barrington, one of the best lengths I've ever seen. It was just immaculate. And it was just textbook length, glued to the wall. If a ball's glued to the wall, you can't hit a cross-court, Nick. You can't play shots. You know, it doesn't matter. You're just banging racking into the wall. And if you can't match that skill, you're in a lot of trouble. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one one thing you mentioned as well uh, in the documentary, and it's kind of connected to this. You talked quite a bit about uh, solo practice. Uh, some guys are like doing two, one hour, two out, two hours of solo practice, and uh, you got to wonder. Uh, people often wonder, oh, how did he get that good? Well, it's uh, a lot has to do with that. Um, just wondering, uh, like for a guy like James Wilstrip, and I know he he spent a lot of time on court doing solo practice, which explains exactly what you were saying just how tight he hits the ball from from everywhere on the court and how accurate he is just uh, if you don't mind uh, rob just uh, in terms of the the importance of solo practice how how much do you uh, emphasize that with your players and how uh, important do you feel it is i think most professional squash players should be doing solo practice at five or six times a week um and that can vary in time because you need to do it uh, that suits you so some people can only concentrate for 45 minutes I see people do a solo for two hours, and it's a waste of time because they're, they're messing around, they're not focusing, they've got headphones on, I don't allow headphones, my players solo, don't like it, you can't hear the noise of the ball. 
um, various other things, but it's critical. And the most so-called talented players I've seen over the last 40 years, I've met, met all of them just about, they've all done a lot of solo practice. And people said I was talented. I don't think I was particularly. It was just I hit more balls than other people. So I practice these things. If you keep practicing them enough, you'll get it, you get a touch, you get a feel, you can experiment. Um, I had a set solo I did four or five times a week. And then I had another solo, which was a little bit more random. Um, but there's a discipline to it, a structure to it. I targets down. You know, I do 50 to lengths and two floorboards. And then I did my 34 uh, backhand drops, 50 to lengths the other side, my 34 hand drops, 50 high volleys. And then I'd do my body drops uh, and a section. It went on like that. And it was a set, set amount. Um, and yeah, I think solo practice is absolutely critical. So any kids out there, um, any players out there, anybody who wants to improve really, solo practice. And it's great fun. You love, I used to love hitting a ball. And the more you do it, the more enjoyable it becomes. I mean, it's a nice feeling hitting a ball really well and improving. It's one of the best ways to improve. And it's something, again, players that come to me, they start doing proper solos and they improve partly because of that. I don't have to say anything. I can show them how to do a solo, and I think a lot of people don't have to do a solo properly. And a solo should have intensity to it. You should come off with a good sweat. You need to move your feet. Don't stand there. I had a girl in the other week, Sunday, let the ball bounce twice. When she's doing a length hit, perfect length, let it bounce twice. I said, what the hell are you doing? You know, you're not going to bounce twice in a match, are you? Pick it up. Don't let the ball bounce. Move your feet. Get on to it quicker. Cut off the perfect length. This sort of stuff, attention to detail on a solo is important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I thought that was pure gold. What you were saying uh, there in the in the documentary. Now, just uh, just one more uh, thing. I don't want to belabor the documentary because uh, uh, everyone should get out there and watch it. Uh, but there was something I, I thought was quite interesting. You talked about um, coaching certification, and uh, and you feel that this current system of uh, coaching certification should be overhauled. Uh, in some way, shape, or form. So, uh, what's your what are your thoughts on that? And and uh, if so, if there's an overhaul required, what do you uh, what would you recommend? It doesn't matter if you're level three, level two, level one. You're a good coach. You're not a good coach. Um, but I've also got to say to quantify this. And people doing a lot of good work out there. You've got a level one or level three, getting kids playing. You know that's just amazing. So there's a lot of coaches out there doing a lot of good work. Don't have to be the best coach in the world or coaching league players. It's very important to have these guys doing the sort of grassroots stuff, getting people involved, playing. Um, you know, I don't know any coaches that are trying to do a bad job. So let's get that straight, you know. But I, I th but going back to the original question, I think I think it needs to be sort of ripped up a little bit and start again. Because um, I think the fundamental principles of what are being taught are actually wrong a lot of them. Um, so most coaches I did along, I changed their minds as to how to, the footwork, for example, I can explain very clearly why the traditional footwork of what most coaches think is right is not right and why it's wrong. Um, the swing, various things like that. There's a lack of understanding. So the coaching manual, in my view, has never been done properly. Um, so, you know, I, I think in consultation I'm not saying myself, but with several people, that could be a much better format. I think the, um, the courses could be a lot better. I think at the moment the courses are designed for, so to, to bring money in. Everybody passes. You know, if, if I you know, run someone over my driving test, um, I'm not going to pass a driving um, licence. You know, I'm, I'm going to fail. In squash, I've never heard anybody fail. So they pay, take the test, they fail. And if you can't do certain things in a certain parameter, you shouldn't be a level three. It shouldn't be automatic. You do one, then two, then three, and pass all three. If you do two, and then you can't do a figure eight, whatever it is, or, or teach somebody something, you shouldn't pass three. So I think it's too easy as well. I think we should have a, you know, tougher parameters um, to pass the things, and it should mean something. And if you fail it, you take it again until you get to level. And that's a problem, obviously, with people 
coming through and coaching, getting badges, and they get jobs, and they talk, you know, with you know, they sound very good. And I think there's a lot of bullshit out there. A lot of people coach. There's a lot of gimmicks out there. You know, I see a lot of people bringing videos. And I think Jesus Christ, just terrible, Jerry. Some of the garbage I see out there on the internet, and these are well-known coaches. Absolute garbage I'm seeing on a regular weekly basis. You know, just, just, and the problem is people see this and they believe it. And that, that's the real issue. There's not enough good people out there putting good content out there. And, you know, I've spoke to various people about that and it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Oh, for sure. Yeah. When you've got, when you're talking about coaching certification, you know, people, you know, they do care. They want, they do also part of it, which we'll talk about later, growing the game. And as you mentioned, a lot of these guys are pretty good at that. Maybe, maybe there needs to be an element of, you know, technique. Uh, maybe, maybe some coaches need to uh, demonstrate that, that they have a, a certain level of playing ability as well. Um, but I can tell you one thing that certainly helps a lot because it gives you an insight that if you haven't played the game, you don't have. There are, of course, exceptions to the rule. Malcolm Wilstrop was a genius. Um, I think what Malcolm does, I mean, to me, he wasn't a coach in the fact that he didn't go on court and actually show you how to hit a ball. That's difficult. Without actually demonstrating and showing you how to hit a ball, it's difficult. So, but Malcolm and other aspects are just brilliant. I loved Malcolm. I don't think many people thought Malcolm did, by the way, um, without actually being able to hit a ball. Um, so there's always been exceptions to the rule, isn't there? Um, whatever it might be. Um, but I, I, I think generally we should have people on court understanding the game, understanding how to hit a ball and some basic principles and strategies. Um, and I think all aspects of sports should have that, whether it be refereeing, um, there should be clear guidelines and parameters to refereeing to make that clearer. Coaching, clear guidelines and parameters that are correct and thought about carefully. And I think we need to re-look re at all this and actually go through and say, actually, where are we? Um, you know, what are the standards like and how can we improve them? Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, well, let's move on, uh, Rob. I, I, I mean, uh, we could spend hours uh, just talking about the stuff from the documentary, but people uh, should go out there and watch it. And uh, you were pretty happy with it, weren't you, uh, uh, I would imagine? I mean, it, Look, it was, I thought it could have been, I'll be honest with you, Jerry, it could have been a lot better. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of people. I mean, Dan Evans, for example, is a good friend of mine, um, world number 23 tennis player, grew up with Dan. Um, you know, done a lot with Dan. You know, there's all sorts of things that could be better, but I'm a bit of a perfectionist. Look, it was okay. It was, it was, it was, yeah, it was acceptable. I thought it was pretty good. Uh, and, and, and just the, the, great, easy, stuff please, there, the great, the great stuff, the great stuff from, uh, from Jonah and also from a lot of your, your players, uh, speaking to, to what you do for them was fantastic. So, uh, now if we could just, uh, move on. I mean, obviously, uh, you're you're on a, an excellent run here over the past uh, several years with with the players that you've been working with. Twelve years, Jerry. Twelve years exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the day I started, it's been an excellent run. Sorry, the day you started. The day I started, it's been a great run. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, twelve years, and you. Uh, I'd just like to get started with uh, with the juniors. I mean, may maybe not a lot of people are aware uh, of this, but uh, uh, people do know that the the England squad, the men, uh, won the World Junior Championships, and uh, you've had uh, you've been working with several of the players, including including a few of the the women who who did well as well. So I uh, just want you to, to speak to uh, the success that they had, the guys that you worked with and the gals. And uh, were you, and this is a lot, but were you at all surprised with, the, uh, with them taking home uh, the championship, the men? Look, I started with the World Juniors. That was brilliant for the, for the England team. Um, I wasn't surprised. It was probably the weakest Egyptian team I've ever seen. Um, and that's being honest. 
Um, there was a couple of great players. There was a young lad who was 14, turned 15, I think, but it was, it was a, you know, an extraordinary player, very, very good. Um, he's going to be a great player, I think, in, in, you know, looking at 18. But at the end of the day, he's a 14-year-old in the semis of World Junior, uh, which is pretty rare. It does happen. Um, you know, Jan Shikhan, you know, yeah, few, you're going back to these sort of guys, really. Um, but that sort of told me that he's unbelievably good, which he was, but also the standard was poor. The guy that won it was the worst World Junior winner I've ever seen. Um, he won't like me saying that, but it's the truth. Um, that's not his fault, by the way. You beat who's there. I, I watched all the matches because I'd people involved, and he did unbelievably well to win that, you know, because he was probably wasn't the best squash player, but he was the toughest guy there. Mentally, he was very, very good, and he managed to reduce his best squash every match. You could play that tour next week, I reckon there'll be another winner. Um, a bit like a horse race, sometimes I watch a horse race with 30 runners. You can run that 10 times, you have 10 different winners. A bit like that tour, I think. Um, so, that, so it was disappointing, it was worrying for me because there weren't any players coming through that I'd expect. Um, a good world junior winner, in my eyes, will be a top 30 level. You know, your Diego's, your Mohammed, your Marwins, um, your Will Strops, a really good world junior well, saw, in my sorry, eyes. Sorry, Rob, you, see, you saw a guy like, uh, like I saw or any of those guys before. And him they were they were they were doing really well. Uh, sorry. Yeah, in my eyes, those guys they wouldn't have been ranked top thirty, but they would have been playing a top thirty standard. So those are those are all exceptional guys. But normally it's an exceptional winner. Dasuki lost in the final, for example. Um, all these guys ended up top ten. I'd be amazed if that guy gets top ten or top twenty. Um, you know, I hope he does. Of course I do. You know, and that's just being honest. And I'd have a good bet that he won't. Um, and there's several people in that tournament who won't long to achieve the things that some other guys have. Um, so it was a weak juniors. I thought the girls were very, very good. The standard girls excellent. The men's generally, I think the standards dropped off a lot um, in the rankings. Now a lot of old guys still playing, hanging on. Um, and there's only really Sal that's come through. Um, normally you've got players constantly sort of, you know, evolving and coming through. And we've lost probably six or seven people in the top 10 in the last five years. Great players, you know, your Matthews, your Goldjay, your, even people like your Rosners, your Wilstrops. I mean, I can just keep going, your Borkers. Um, there's a whole load of Mossad. Um, in fact, you could probably name nine players that really disappeared. So really, some of the guys that are seven or eight now would be 18. Um, yeah. Or maybe the same standard as those people I'm talking about, or slightly less. But the standard has dipped a lot. I mean, that's pretty obvious if you look at the ranking. Um, um, but I mean, look, that's the way it is. We have these dips and drops, and we've had an incredible period for a long time. You know, the last 10 years has been the golden era, really. Um, but back to World Juniors, because I've worked with Jonah Bryant and Sam, uh, Sam Osborne Wild. Both great kids, both have a talent, um, both can hopefully play full time and on to successful careers. Um, both can improve a lot. Jonah is pretty exceptional talent wise. I enjoy working with him. I did a little bit of work with him in 13. He's now come to me full time and he's improved enormously since I took him on in December, really. The astronomical improvements. And Sam was one while he won the final match, which was so pleased with Sam. You know, he's improved a lot in the year. He beat the young Egyptian guy we were talking about. And he didn't just beat him, he battered him. Um, best result of his life, most satisfying result. And, you know, it, I was really proud of them both. Um, you know, I, that's why I, I love coaching those young kids. Hassan Khalil is another lad I coach. He got the final British Junior Open, um, which is another extraordinary result. I think he saved about 15 match balls. Um, he's travelled to Princeton. Um, Katie Maliff, my coach, she won the European Junior Championships. Didn't get picked for England, by the way, but won the European Junior Championships. Um, three love, three love, three love, three love, three love. Didn't drop a game. Six in the world. She's playing top 40 level now. Yeah, she's um, playing well, isn't she? She's a very good player. Talented girl. Worked with Kate from 13 years old. Um, again, 
sadly, I'm probably a bit of a father figure to her, but we get on very well. I think a lot of her, um, she probably doesn't think much of me, but uh, she comes over regularly. We see each other a lot, and she's me. I've been lucky with her because I've been able to mould her to play I want her to be from a young age. So every aspect of the game, I, I like she's got the loss. She'll be good. She'll be very good. She's had a few injury problems, that's the only concern, but she'll be a good player. And a pleasure to her. Um, Lewis Anderson, another junior I worked with, unseen, got the World Junior semi-finals. Um, and I've, I've loved working these. I currently coach the England uh, under 13, number one, the under 15, number two. Um, so I've had a lot of success with these juniors and what I do seems to work. They enjoy it, which is fundamental to playing as a junior. They look at the bigger picture, which is important to me. So when I get a kid 13, I imagine how they'll play at 17 or 18. I don't look short term. It often works short term, but I look at the bigger picture. What sort of player is going to be? What sort of player does he want to be? You know, does he want to be a shot player? Does he, some people don't want to be a shot player. They might want to be a bit more defensive and use athleticism. The physicality of the game they might enjoy. So I'll, I'll have that discussion. I'll look at it and I'll have a vision of how they're going to play squash. And a lot of my players haven't been ranked high, but they've been the best players in the country. At the moment, they all are ranked high, but that will happen. But I couldn't care less. I say to my players, one they always say is, would you rather be ranked the uh, ranked 20 and the best player in the country? Or would you rather be ranked one and the 20th best player in the country? And of course, they always say, well, I'd rather be ranked 20 the best player. Now, most parents need to tell on board more because they're obsessed with rankings. And I couldn't, it, you know, it's not worth a character in that ranking. You know, I just burn it, rip it up. And, you know, you want to be the best player. Focus in your squash, enjoy playing, and the results will come. So the, uh, just wondering, like, do you ever uh, bump heads with, with, uh, with parents in regard to expectations? I, I can just imagine what, what that conversation would be like. I don't bump heads with parents at all, because if I bump heads and they can't turn to piss off and they're not involved. So it's a very simple conversation. It's a very short conversation, generally. Um, don't be wrong, I'm a parent myself. I get on well with the parents. Um, but if I've got a guy who's, who's, who's repairing boilers, he's not going to tell me how to hit drop shots. And vice versa, I won't go around and do my own boiler. I'll get him to do it. So there's no point in him telling me how to hit a drop shot and what shots uh, someone's going to play. Um, so, yeah, it's not. parents need to be supportive. I mean, um, you know, I took uh, Joan on and one of, the reasons, one of the things I said originally was, that, look, I'm going to monitor the squash time. You be a supportive parent. And uh, Ross's dad, he's a lovely fella. He's a bit of a maverick too. He's, he's different. Um, and we've gone great. And, and he sees the results. And once he probably gets better, gets on better with Jonah now because of that. Um, he's still very involved in the squash. He loves it. He goes on court then. But I did the squash side of things. I did the technical side, the mental side. Talked to um, Jonah about the game. And Ross just gets on being a you know, great dad and really supportive parent. And, and that's actually helped Jonah a lot as well. That dynamic and that shift in the relationship. And when parents get too close, it's impossible. You can't coach your kids, Jerry. You know, the hardest person I ever coached is my son, Josh. And, you know, it's, it's impossible because you're too close to it. You have to remove yourself. Um, but parents sometimes can't help themselves. I see a lot of kids now being held back by parents. And the parents don't mean it. All they want to do is do their best. But inadvertently, they're affecting the kids, their performance. They make them nervous. They make them edgy. They make them not enjoy it. They have arguments about it. Um, so coaching parents is sometimes just important. You know, and, and get them to step away. And someone like myself, I just remove that situation. I take the piss out of them a little bit. Um, you know, I, I say, okay, well, you know, you come on, you show me how you play that shot there. And of course, they can't. I mean, half these parents don't play the game here. You know, <laughs> yeah. and if I embarrass them to go on court, say, well, just show me your forehand drive. I want to see you cut that and then play a boast, low boast, hold it. But of course, they 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 they're just embarrassed and everyone laughs and 
but there's a, there's a, there's a real point to that. Um, and you say that to them, and then all of a sudden they go pretty quiet, and they let you get on with it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, it sounds uh, uh, obviously that you're really proud of the work that you've done with the juniors, and uh, keep up that good work, Rob, because that's where the the future lies for for squash England. It's one of the joys of sport, Jerry. It's one of the joys of sport working with young kids, making them better people. And to me, it's very important not just on the squash court but off the squash court. So I take them out for nice lunches. We do this and that, and you know, and it's 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 teaching them how to interact with people. Um, you know, talk to adults, mix and if they don't end up being squash players necessarily, they've got that for life. They've got sort of social sort of etiquette and skills that they can use anywhere in business, at university. So it's very important, I think, off the court, it's just important, you know, teach them to be good people. And that's something I always respected. Again, go back to Malcolm. We all, people often reference Malcolm with these sort of things. And he all his players behave so well. They're just good kids, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and that's just brilliant. You know, and I look at some of these people, the way they behave in these players, I think, Jesus Christ, I wouldn't coach them like that. I'd be putting my foot down, um, you know, and I, I think a lot of responsibility does come to the coaches. Now, of course, as people, we can't always control what they do, but you do have a choice to coach them or not. And it doesn't matter. I mean, I've got rid of a few good players in, my, in the last 12 years who have been very, very good um, for either be not appreciating things, for not behaving in a certain way, um, you know, and it hasn't been publicly out there, probably why we sort of spit up, but it's normally been because they haven't appreciated, they've been very selfish, haven't worked in a group particularly well. Um, some of them being complete bastards, you know, you think, Jesus, what a tosser. And you only realize what you people like when you don't coach him, Jerry, as well, by the way. But, you know, you have to be big, the bigger person. And, uh, you know, if, if you're not happy with that, and there's too many people out there still coaching people who behave poorly. You know, Sal being a private example. Um, if, he, if I coached him, he wouldn't behave like that, or I wouldn't coach him. It's as simple yeah. as that. Well, uh, speaking of someone, uh, uh, George Parker's a guy that you have uh, that's close to your heart, and he's someone who's you've been with for uh, been working with for a while. Uh, and I'm just uh, just wondering, is he someone you see uh, a bit of yourself uh, back in your playing days? Uh, do you see a bit of him and yourself? And does he uh, obviously he has he has talent? Uh, and is it his uh, temperament that's sort of causing him not to reach his full potential? Uh, at the moment? Yeah, look, I don't coach George now. I haven't coached George for about sort of four, four or five years, you know, for various reasons, which uh, I'll, you know, I'm not going to expand on now, but I'll probably talk about a few of those a few minutes ago. Uh, but I love George. He's a great kid. He's a lovely kid. I've got a lot of time for him. like the kid a lot. Um, you know, he comes from, um, you know, he had issues, you know, he's, but his temperament is going back. He should be a lot better now. To me, he should be a top 10 player. Um, he's wasted his ability. He'll probably hold his hands up and say that. Um, he needs somebody like me badly. He has lots of like me in his life at the moment. Um, he's moved up the ranks a bit lately. But again, that's because the standards got worse. I mean, he was playing better squash than he four years ago. Um, physically, he's probably better. Um, but his actual squash has got worse over the last three years, four years, which is, I never like to see that. I want to see someone succeed. I really do. Um, I really like George and I really hope he succeeds. The mental side, without a doubt, she says, held him back a lot. Um, he's probably over-concentrating the physical aspect of squash, not because I always felt George a great squash player. You know, he's one of the most talented kids I worked with. And it's around 19-20. He's one of the few I got wrong, really. I was pretty confident to be a top 16 player at least. And then we could move on from there, see where he got to. I was, I mean, I remember him losing to Nick 3-2 in the Worlds. Um, yeah. I remember him playing uh, 20 years old, playing James in the, in the Nationals. And James came on and said, that's the best English player I've seen for a long time. He hasn't reached those levels since. And that was a long time ago now. Um, certainly with his squash 
Um, and people talk about his behaviour. Um, fundamentally, George is a nice lad. He has these anger things. And he, you know, it, it's always sort of aimed at himself, not so much his opponent, really. Um, he just gets his frustration and he doesn't always express that. Um, but when you meet him, he's a nice lad. You know, he's a simple lad. He's not overcomplicated. I always found him easy to deal with. You know, we're, I, I respected him. He respected me, I think. Um, I always tried to help George. He stayed at my house a lot. And I did my very best with him. And I, I just wish him the very best. I really hope it works out for George. I mean, I suspect he's, he needs, there's some things he needs to change that are very obvious. Um, that he's not changing. Um, and obviously, mentality is one of them. Um, and at the moment, he just can't. He's never been a top player, has he? And he's now 25, 26, I think. And he's, he's yet to be a decent player. Um, which for his ability, he's a scandal. Because there's people worse than him who are beating good players. And, you know, it's crying out for George Parker, Tom. And people love watching. He's exciting. Yeah. There's always something different. He's, he's a character. He's interesting. Um, he has a lot going for him. Oh, for sure. He's physically, he, he's strong. He has all the skills, like you, like you said. Uh, so if he can just get his head around how to, how to make it work uh, consistently. Um, I mean, he's had some decent results this season. Uh, he's had a couple of decent long. results, uh, Jerry? Which decent results? Uh, I, I think in the first couple of events, he he won he won a couple of early round matches, and then he then he ended up. Uh, yeah, they're not know. decent results. They're people I expect George Park to beat very easily. But in my book, then they they, they they might look decent results now over the last three or four years, but he'd have beaten those guys four or five years ago the way at that level he was playing then. So to me, that's not that's not improvement. He needs to be beating top sixteen players. Um, to yeah. begin. He lost to Sura the other day. Sura's thirty five years old. You know, George is twenty five. If he was any good, he'd be serve now. Simple as that. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. That was the match. Uh, yeah, he should. And be that's not. I'm not being rude about that. It's just a fact. You know, he lost 11 three and a third. Just not good enough. You know, he's, he's better than that, George. In my eyes, he should be beating someone like that comfortably now. Is that just sure, a, a, is that a confidence thing? Is that just a confidence thing? He self well, He's he's not the shot player and the squash player he used to be. Um, I think he needs to go back to that um, confidence as well. You know, he's never beaten a top player, so of course you. Winning and losing is a habit, um, and he needs to get a few of those wins. Um, but yeah, look, there's various reasons, and you know, I can sit down and talk with George anytime he wants, obviously, about that sort of stuff. But you can you can put these level as any player, Jerry, to a certain extent. But George is someone I'm passionate about doing well because I like him, and he's yeah. English. Not that I've, I coach people all over the place, but he's just a nice family. I, I loved his brother as well, Luke, um, coached him for a little bit, and he's a great kid. Um, and I just, he's someone I just, he's frustrating because I know he can do so much better. There's a lot more in George Parker and you're not seeing it. Well, there's a, a Joel Macon is a guy that you, uh, you must have been proud with of the work that you put in with him. He rose up uh, under your uh, tutelage and he got up to his, uh, I guess, from the bottom of the rankings, pretty much up into the top 10 when you were working with him. So for many outside looking in, though, uh, I think it was at the time, right around the time when Paul Cole joined you, you he he left uh, he left your stable. So I'm just wondering, uh, is this how the is this how that departure uh, played itself out? Was that uh, when Paul arrived, more or less, Joel just felt he he wanted to go elsewhere? Look, some of those things I trust Joel. I mean, look, the fact of the matter is, I'm pretty confident. You know, a lot of people say this. If, if Paul, if Joel was still here, probably where Paul is now. He's certainly a lot better than he is now. That's obvious. He had direction for a little bit, and he got worse. Um, probably playing to a similar level now. I was, I was very impressed in the Commonwealth Games final. Um, you know, but I mean, obviously, when I coached, he beat the world in one, two, and three. He's not doing that now. Um, certainly on a regular basis. Um, 
he plays some great tricks. But look, I, I, I enjoyed working with Joel. I have a respect for him on the squash side of things. Um, he's one of the toughest people I know as far as the squash side goes. And when he came to me, he was useless, Jerry. Several people said to me, you're wasting your time. Um, I always had a faith in him because he was so determined. You know, when I worked with him, it was a joy. I put hundreds hundreds of hours, probably thousands of hours in Joel, as much as almost anybody, even Nathan Lake, probably. Um, but uh, look, he improved dramatically. I can tell you now, without me, he, he, he may have got to 50, but I, I very much doubt he got to top 30, and that's not me saying that. That's a lot of really good judges, you know, probably probably eight, nine people who are top coaches said that. Um, and he wouldn't have done, simple as that. So the respect there in some ways. Um, I've touched base Joel several times. He, once you leave, that's it. I never spoke to him since, really. Um, Talked him recently. Got on really well, made a big effort. Um, had a great conversation. Um, messaged him the next day. I think that was July. Um, really nice to hear Joel, you know, and uh, being the bigger person. Didn't hear back from the bloke. You know, not even replied to your message. So he can be a salvage. So, you know, I'll say that publicly. Um, never a phone call. We looked after him, fed him, fed him and his family, not a word from the family, not a word from Joel. And these will sound like tough words. But, uh, you know, I speak to other coaches and have the same thing. I spoke to Nick Mass this morning. Uh, I mean, it's someone who just treats him very badly. Ronnie Martin, some of the players treats him. And you never know what people are like, Jerry, until you don't coach them. Um, you know, and there's some, there's some black hearts out there, you know, and there's some good hearts. There's some all sorts of people. And look, maybe me and Joel end up becoming friends. Obviously, the Paul thing. Um, you know, Paul coming on board, probably I didn't realise that. Maybe I thought, I, I genuinely thought when Paul came on, that would be brilliant for John. Um, Joel was like, whatever he was, 10 or something, or I know, 12, whatever he was playing that top level, same as Paul. I thought I can prove them both. I knew that Paul improved a lot when he came to me, and I said that to Joel. Um, maybe Joel didn't like seeing his improvements, I don't know. I haven't discussed it. But I just felt, I genuinely felt, Joel was always my number one player at that time. I'd said that to Paul, and... I, th- I thought it'd be brilliant for them to work together and get one and two in the world. And I genuinely think that would have happened. Uh, he would definitely be better now. He'd improved a lot from playing ball. And he'd be in a different situation now in many, many ways. You know, he'd be loving it. Um, sure, he still loves playing now. But um, look, never say never. Hopefully, we'll be very good friends again. We've, we've done a lot of work together. I mean, we achieved a massive amount. You know, when I had him, he was hopeless. And he ended up beating the top three in the world, as I say. So there's always that there. Um, hopefully he'll probably he'll look back in 10 years and think yeah do you know what Rob probably helped me a little bit then he never talks about it which is a joke um, I'm still talking about Joan and people you know he probably drove me around at 16 17 never forgotten people who helped me a lot of these guys just move on forget and I didn't charge Joel either people like that at the start you know there's never any sort of financial things you know I, I didn't get any of my time really it cost me fortunes hundreds of thousands coaching people Jerry and um, you just do it you love it you know I spoke to Nick Massey this morning I said he loves it. David Cameron, I was on the phone before you. They just love helping people. Um, Rodney Martin has done so much to help people. Can't emphasise how much people like Rod have done. And I'm picking out three names there, but there's hundreds of coaches throughout the world helping people from their timing, volunteers. And I just want people to sort of appreciate that. And someone like myself talking about that might make people think, you know what, we've got a guy down the road who's helping us. It's just say thank you a bit more sometimes. Appreciate what they're doing. I think that's really important in sport. Because it is a selfish sport, Jerry, mm-hmm. and you know, we can all be selfish, but you know we we are trying to put back into sport, and I think players need to put back more in sometimes and be appreciative of just you know both sponsors, the sport itself, and putting back into sport and people around them who've been important and help them. I think that's a, that's that's an important point to make. 
Well, the documentary uh, uh, and the players that spoke about uh, how much they appreciate you is fantastic uh, to listen to. And one of the uh, one of the female players uh, uh, that I've had here on the podcast a couple of times, uh, S.J. Uh, Perry. I always enjoy talking to her. She's uh, an incredible talent, as we all know, with the racket, and probably I would say the best uh, with the racket in the women's game. But uh, yeah, it's enabled her to to get where she is. I, I forget what I'm not sure what her ranking is. I think she's top ten still. Uh, she's likable. She's funny. She's intelligent. Uh, it's a, it's great always talking to her. Uh, what's it been like uh, for you working with her over the years? Because I know she she can be a bit quirky uh, as well. Yeah, look, I love SJ's quirk. You know, she's she can be difficult. She can be awkward sometimes a little bit. She's um. But I love her. I, I do love SJ, you know, and she's somebody that I've thoroughly enjoyed working. She's a challenge um, to get the best out of her. And sometimes getting 90% out of SJ is like getting 100%. Something like Joel, for example, was so easy because he just tried so hard every time, which is one of his you know, brilliant qualities. And it sounds obvious that, but some people don't actually try 100% all the time, Jerry. It might surprise you, but so getting 100% out of something in the session is difficult. Um, she can overcomplicate things, so giving the structure is, is a challenge. Um, making a place with simplicity, um, using that ability in different ways, making a rushing at balls back all. But she's, she's look, at the end of the day, it's like SJR, I'll be very good friends with her. I like her a lot. I want to help her. She's a real talent. She's, she's probably the best ball striker in the world. Because, I mean, she, you know, she doesn't she doesn't move anything like those top three girls, and yet she's still beating them. Which, when you think about it, she's got to be a better ball striker, a better player. Because for her to beat those guys and, and those girls, she's, she's moving at half their pace sometimes. You know, she, there's just balls she can't get back, they get back comfortably and play a shot. So the fact she beat Shabini twice or three times in a row was extraordinary. Yeah, what I find, uh, Rob, with, with SJ, I mean, any ball that's sort of left open, they're, they're, they're in trouble, right? She's going to do something special with it. And then, you know, it's just a matter of her being able to get to the next with the balls that come back to her. But when you say special, we're going back to that thing. She's, she's got a very simple swing now. Um, when she first got to tennis, she's pulled back and she used to flick everything from behind her. And she used to use ability to improvise all the time. And one thing I did was get her to improvise less. So instead of improvising 56 to turn the match, she now improvises 20. She'd always have to improvise a bit. But now, if the ball's loose, she can hit straight drop. She can, she can cut across fourteen. She can hit a quick boast or she can hit a drive. She's got a lot of options with the same swing. And she's very accurate. And she has an ability to pure ball striking like not many girls have. I mean, some of the sessions, I'm doing a session after this with her and some of the sessions we do, the quality is as good as a lot of the boys. But what the boys wouldn't realise, she's a better player than most of the men. Um, she's actually a better squash player. Um, she really is. If you take the physicality out of the game, it's pure ball striking, the way she plays, the intelligence, um, the skill level. Um, she's a better player than a lot of the blokes that I coach um, and have coached. Um, the blokes wouldn't realise that. They probably don't like it, but it's like she really, to me, is probably the best player in the world. Um, um, I really believe that. Um, if you put bloody um, Paul Cole's legs in the Jesus Christ, it'd be a joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, how can uh, is there any way of uh, dealing with with uh, SJ's movement, or is that just something you have to live with and and uh, hopefully work around? Well, you, you work on these things, you improve them. She's never going to use same bolts, is she, mate? You know, nor am I. But I mean, um, you know, you work with what you've got and you, you improve it. Um, it's never going to be a strength, but you try and get it smoother and you know, get a fitter. Um, it's like everybody, that is a weakness of hers and everyone has those weaknesses. I mean, um, and yeah, that's what we keep doing. Yeah, that's my weakness uh, these days, just the movement, uh, trying to stay fitter and get around the court a bit better. That, that's the key, I think. Uh, 
Now you and I, uh, and, I told you uh, no, no. I told you no talking about your squash career in this interview. <laughs> yeah, we won't it's go banned. that and golf, mate. Banned. Yeah, banned from from the podcast. You're right. Thank thanks, Rob. I, I'll take that and uh, I'll write that down now. Now uh, <laughs> we, we we've talked about uh, you and I and several others. Uh, Rodney Martin, actually, we've talked uh, a little bit about Mustafa Saul and. Uh, I was just wondering, this came to mind, uh, if, if Mustafa uh, decided tomorrow that he wanted to turn over a new leaf, let's say, and he came to you, uh, would, you would you take him on? Now, I I'm just thinking, you know, knowing what I, you know, your views on Mustafa, you might not, but uh, if you did, uh, how would you begin to change the way he plays so that he can let his amazing, I mean, he's un an unbelievable ball striker, his squash ability uh, do the talking rather than this other stuff? Look, I think, first of all, you know my views on the sale. Most people don't know my views on the sale. My views on the sale are always a cheat. Simple as that, plain and simple. Um, there's things there that shouldn't. Um, I, I, I do not like cheating. Um, I don't like people who call balls up that are clearly down. And um, Mustafa, every time a ball's down or close to the, the, the tin, um, he'll say he's up and he'll be positionally say it as well. We then see a replay and the ball's hit halfway down the tip. That is cheating. Now, I wouldn't mind that if sometimes when the ball's up, he puts his hand up to that ball's down, but he never does. It's always a one way round. So, okay. so let's be simple about that's pure and plain cheating. Okay, he needs to change that um, for the good of the sport and for the good of himself. Makes himself look very stupid too. Not good for sponsors, not good for the sport. Um, the movement thing has been discussed. I don't want to talk about it for ages and ages, but I haven't spoken to one player in the top 30 who's approved his movement. He thinks it's good. They all think it's cheating. They won't say it probably because they can't. Um, if everyone who plays them seems to be falling over against him, there's little nudges going forward and backwards. Um, we've talked about the training back legs. A lot of the movements are unnatural. Um, it might be accidental, but it's unnatural. It's not how you move. You know, I spoke to a lot of people about this and there's issues there. He needs to sort it out. Um, I think he has a lot of charisma. I think potentially he could be very, very good for the game. Um, there's something about the guy, you know, Ramesh Shaw had it, certainly not charisma. You can't buy charisma. It's not something you can sort of work on and buy. He has charisma. Um, he has a flair that is rare. He's an exceptional squash player when he plays squash. Uh, I have seen some clean matches with him where he's just conscious on the squash side of things and good. I'll also add, I think he's been treated treated unfairly at times by referees because of his reputation. So recently he's had a few, you know, he's had a few bad raps from refs where he hasn't been that bad and they're looking out for things that haven't happened. Um, but he's brought that himself, Jerry. Yep. So that's an issue. Um, back to the question, would I coach Mustafa Sal? Um, if he cleans his act up, well, let's see if that happens. I wouldn't coach him while I'm coaching Paul Cole. Um, looking back in hindsight, maybe it was a mistake to have two top players, but you know, you want to work the best guys, and I'm in a situation I want to help people. You know, I'd love to help uh, Mustafa. Um, I can see areas where he could definitely improve his squash a lot. Um, whatever you think, he's not as good as you think. You know, Paul Cole beating three on the British Open, Ali's just beating him. He's an exceptional player, but he's not. He's a long way from the finished product. Um, he hasn't got a fantastic touch at all. He needs a bit more deception. His short games improve a lot. He has immense power. Athleticism is unbelievable. You know, it really is. It's almost reminds you back to sort of January days or someone with that sort of moves and that. That's lesson. A lot of big lunges, he can improve that. He can get more balanced than the ball. Um, it's very tiring. You know, you can't do the splits economically, and he's doing a lot of splits. Um, that's hard work. Yeah, I think I, I listened to Joel's podcast today, and Joel made a very good point that he, he has some hard rallies, and then he, he breaks it up by having a let, a few lets, and a chapter referee or whatever. Um, and, you know, that's an excellent point because he does do that. Um, he'll, um, you know, he'll break things up to give himself a rest. 
So it's not often as a continuous match, this continuous play. There's always some discussion. And I'm, I'm pretty sick, Jerry, of talking about referees and decisions in the matches these days. I watched a match the other day with um, Dick Mark playing Jahangi and Scotch Open. And there was barely, I think Dick Mark said one thing, the referee Jahangi said one thing. It was about an hour and a half match. It was a discussion. And there was probably about 10 minutes total in the whole match. Um, some ridiculously long rallies, just not not a conversation. Not one person is talking about the referee or decisions. And there's a couple, okay, there were a couple of easy decks, but you know what? There's a lot less decisions than that. I was surprised. And the players I watched with were absolutely gobsmacked how few decisions there were. The players got on with it. Um, I'm sick and tired of talking about referees' decisions at the end of every match. I want to talk about the squash, Jerry. I don't want to talk about this sort of stuff. I want to talk about a great match, um, you know, what he did. How he played, deception, wasn't that wonderful, the movements, all the different aspects that make squash a great sport. And at the moment, I feel we're not. So we need to get away from that. And things like squash stories every time. And people putting clips of video decisions now. What do you think? Was it let or no let? No one's putting a clip or look at the shot. They're putting clips of like let or no let. And we're all going, you look at it, there's 120 comments. You know, madness. You know, we need, we need, I'm sorry, I, I, we really need to get away from that, make it back in squash and the great sport it is. Do you think uh, officiating in terms of that, uh, should they be clamping down uh, a little bit more on, uh, you know, speaking back uh, play players, uh, arguing with officials and, and things like that? That I mean, look at a sport like rugby. I mean, uh, these guys are so respectful to the, to the officials. Uh, you, can't, you can't say anything. Look, I agree with you completely, Jerry. I think we should clamp down a bit at the same time. I don't like to see people over officials as well. Um, and sometimes the way referees speak to players doesn't help. You know, I don't think John Masaryk speaks to players or he's like a school teacher. He, you know, I, I don't like the way he talks to people sometimes, you know, and that's nothing. I don't know John particularly well. I'm sure he's a lovely fellow, but the way people talk to him is important to gain their respect. Um, and, the, and also, it's difficult when the referee is giving such poor decisions. I've advocated full-time referees for a long time. It's something with my group, with ISM, um, we're looking at, we're trying to implement. And, you know, I know Pierce are looking at it and we need full-time referees badly. And by the way, that might not be the way to go. It might not make it a load better in me because there might not be any better than the full-time referees, but it, it will certainly professionalise it, I think, and um, we should hope to get some better standards of refereeing. But fundamentally, the players need to be talked to, um, I think, before matches, made aware of how it looks on, on TV, especially these big TV matches. Yeah. And there needs to be more respect between players and more respect from players to referees. Yeah, but what, what do you think in terms of accountability? Like, if you, uh, I guess that might be where you're going with full-time rep officials. Uh, if you're full-time, then you'd be a little bit more accountable, maybe a bit more prepared, uh, things like that. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Or Look, I also think there's a few more parameters that are simple as referee. I mean, so, for example, in cricket, you know, I, mean, I don't watch cricket, um, Jerry, but it, it's very, very clear when you go to the umpire, okay? So, you you, you first will check to see if it's no ball, which means their front foot is over or behind the line. You then see if the ball is in line um, with the stumps. If it isn't, it's straight away not out. You then go to ball tracker. You see if there's any bat involved, um, stickometer, and if there's no bat involved, you then go on, you carry on again, and then you go to see if the, if the ball would hit stumps. If it hit the back of the pad first, then the stumps. If it did, the ball, you are given out. Now, there's some clear set of guidelines promised there. For referees, I would say, right, first of all, first and foremost, basically, fundamentally, can you get the ball back? You can't, no less. Can you get the ball back? Yes. Go to the next step. Was the player in the way? Yes or no. Okay. Then you go to the next step. Could he have been a winner when he got there? Yes, he could. 
stroke. Okay, we can go, I can go through a number of those different ones with you. But I don't know it's clear parameters there. Um, so it's something, you know, again, I'm doing with the, the independent squash ones. We, we're looking at those sort of things in conjunction with PSA. Now, I know PSA looking at them clearly. Um, it hasn't worked what we've done the last four years. It's got worse, in my opinion. And that's the honest truth of it. And we need to improve that. And we need a working group to look at it. We need a working group to look at the, with the referees and have some clear guidelines. And at the moment, there's confusion because one referee will give a completely different decision in the same instance as the guy who's marking the next match. So the players don't know if it's a letter or a stroke sometimes or no less. Yeah, I think um, they've overcomplicated it, haven't they? I mean, I think in an effort, the, what they're trying to do is get players to play through, uh, play the ball and, and make the game flow a bit more. But in as a result, it, they've, it, they've overcomplicated lets and strokes and players really don't know, and nor do we, uh, what call is, is coming. At, at this is the problem. Time. As I said to you, look, sometimes, Jerry, as well, we need to say, look, let's let get on with it. They're trying to make it no let too much sometimes. It's let, serve quickly, move on, let ball, just walk to the side, move on quickly. We don't want to look at three three different camera angles and try and make it no let. Just give them a let and move on quick. We're wasting two or three minutes. Um, far too many sort of decisions in matches and too long talking about decisions. And the video reviews, we're looking at four times. If it's that, if, if you're that unsure about it, you need to look at it four times, give a bloody let. Yeah, you yeah know? absolutely. It's as simple as that. And, that. and that foreshortened camera angle from above the players, that gives a completely different perspective. Sometimes you need to look at real life, uh, the real view in time, and not look at that camera angle because it always looks like they could have got it. It always looks like a stroke. You know, you know again, sometimes you look at the other camera angle, which is a more realistic angle, and you, it sometimes it looks like you couldn't have got it. And then you look at that camera above, it looks like a stroke. Um, and that causes complications as well. And it confuses the issue, clouds the issue. So again, should we use that? Should we not? I bet you no one's even discussed that. Um, because it does, it adds a complete dimension with the camera from above. I look at it from racing as well with different camera angles. And one horse looks like it's one length ahead of the other. And you look at a different camera angle, it looks like it's five lengths or level with it. And that's the difference that camera angles make. You know, they can literally go on their level and actually one's four lengths clear. And again, I've never heard of you talk about this sort of stuff, but it's the same thing. You know, make it simple, make it clear, make it so that people can understand it like yourself. Not saying you don't understand it, but I mean, none of us understand it at the moment. Oh, I and don't also, understand. You don't. So, okay, there's a lot of people out there that don't understand. I don't understand it a lot of time, Jerry. And also, the other thing we're advocating is why not when the video um, referee um, makes a decision, let's hear his view, what he's saying, you know, rather than just sort of having Joey and PJ making fools themselves and saying it's no less, and then it comes back as a stroke. Because let's be honest, people don't know if they're wrong or right, and they're going to look, you know, they're going to look silly when. Someone doesn't watch squash, they say no, that the video referee comes back with a stroke because the ref said stroke, the video referee says stroke, and Joey and PJ said no let. They shouldn't be commentating on that, in my view. There's too much talk for commentators about the refereeing decisions. Lee do stick the crowd and then saying, go, let's go down to Lee, what do you think? Well, he should be commentating about it because he's the bloody guy who's he's in charge of those guys. Absolutely yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I think, like you said earlier, a lot of this is just a simple let. They're looking at, you know, did the, the, the player ran into the player, the, the, the incoming player ran into the outgo outgoing player. There's a little bit of interference. Uh, just play it, play it left if he could have got to the ball. Play it left quickly, Jerry. Let's get on with it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Get on with the game. Um, and if it's, if it's a stroke, give a stroke quickly as well. Let's try and speed things up. I mean, we're having these matches where there's hundreds of amount of decisions. And, and just talking about it, and you've, you've got, we're going to end up like tennis where 20% of the time the ball's in play. 
you know, I, it, I bet you that would be interesting how much the ball is in play now compared to 10 years ago. Um, it wouldn't be as much because there's a far more talk in video reviews. The ball in play continuously far longer 10 years ago. I'd have very good bet on that. Yeah, I think maybe the video review, they need to re revisit that as well because that's basically maybe the cause of the, the, the slow play and the delays uh, that we have. Well, they have, they have reviewed him, they, uh, Jerry, because you're now allowed four, I mean, four games. You need yeah, four in the first game. Yeah. So they have, they have changed that. Whether we see if that works, someone who's got a half a brain, you know, I mean, I might be asking my players to stay with the fourth one, use four in a row, have a nice rest, take five minutes out, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. Th there's ways to abuse that, which I'll, of course I've gone through every possibility of abusing it. Of course. Uh, now, uh, in the last event, the last pro event uh, that was in Egypt, it was played in Cairo just outside the pyramids and uh, uh, to a man, every every player who played uh, on that court uh, was not happy. Uh, obviously, the uh, the aesthetics were great, uh, but uh, the wind, the sand on the court, and we had a similar issue in Canada at the Canadian Nationals. You had shadows, you had rain delays, as a few of my friends who uh, played in the event uh, experienced a rain delay during the, the event. So uh, you, the, we've got the aesthetics right, but perhaps, uh, you know, that's the positive. But uh, what's your take uh, on outdoor squash, uh, especially in these big events? One thing I never heard, thought I'd hear in squash, Jerry, was rain stops playing. Absolute madness, you know, or sand stops by. I mean, I spoke to Paul after five minutes, Ali. No excuses. Same for both. Paul said he couldn't stand up front left. He said they swept it twice, the first three points, whatever it was. And as soon as they swept it, there was sand there. You put your foot down, there's actually footprints in the sand. For some reason, it was worse front left. Um, and to me, the big issue is player safety. Um, simple as that, because um, you go on a wet court, you go on a sandy course. It's a matter of time before someone snaps a hamstring, does a nasty injury. Do we wait for that to happen? and then get sued or something, and he looks horrendous in the final, or do you sort that problem out before? The pyramid is obviously the most iconic uh, venue, um, but, 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 but so is Van Central. That's a great venue. It's indoors. Um, I've watched the tournaments indoors in Egypt. They've been brilliant. The guy who does CIB, um, look, he, he's been one of the best things happened to squash in the last five years. I mean, without him, there wouldn't have been a tour in COVID. So I'm not, I'm not that guy. He's done an unbelievable job. Should he be played outside? In my view, no. Should wind affect it? You know, Paul likes to lob the ball. Um, I shouldn't just talk about one player to save everybody. Lots of players love the ball. The ball's been got blown out of court. You know, I mean, Shabini's skirt was around her bloody ears. You know, it's, it's, it's madness. Yeah, yeah. Um, no one wants to see that, um, especially Shabini. Um, oh, sure, for sure, yeah. No, the ladies have some trouble. You can see they're, they're tying up their outfits and doing stuff to, to keep, uh, you know, to keep it respectable out there. They'll be wearing belts, uh, the girls, when they play out in the wind. It's, it's crazy. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's madness. We shouldn't be having those sort of conditions. And, and not only that, you've got 38 degrees sometimes. It's not squash. You've got the wind, you've got sand, and you've got 38 degrees. You can't play a drop shot. People, you know, I know Sarah won those things, but I mean, no one can play a drop shot there. You can do a lob. If you play a drop shot, come back to the halfway line. It's just not squash. You know, it's a leveller. You know, the best players aren't winning sometimes because of the conditions. And it shouldn't be like that in squash. We should have good conditions to play the sport. You get quick front walls. You get crazy slippy floors, things like that a little bit. But you shouldn't have wind, you shouldn't have sand, and you shouldn't have rain. Yeah, more shadows. Back. Shadows is, are an issue for playing during the day as well, which is what... Shadows and bright sunlight is not ideal either, you know. But, I mean, look, that's my view on it. Um, people differ with this. And I love the pyramids. I think it's brilliant. I love outdoor venues as a... As a um, 
you know, as a theory, I think it's amazing. In practice, it clearly doesn't work. Um, and as I say, someone's going to get injured. It's a bad spectacle as well for TV and for cameras. Um, it's tough to commentate on for the guys because, you know, no one's here to knock anybody. And we appreciate what the sponsors are doing and putting the money in. Um, but I can't believe the sponsor's happy with that. Um, seeing this like that because it's positive for everybody. Yeah, uh, definitely. I, I agree 100%. Now, um, now, Rob, in the documentary, you talked about uh, you, you really, you're, you don't really like all the buddy-buddy stuff that's going on uh, uh, with some of the players, not all the players uh, on the tour these days. And, uh, but what we've seen, on, especially in the, in the women's game, is a lot of, uh, you know, there's, there's some terrific rivalries. And none, uh, none, I think one that's developed uh, over the last year and a half or so is the gohar Hamami. Uh, rivalry, and we saw what happened uh, at the end of last season, and then again here in uh, in Cairo most recently. Just wondering what your your thoughts are on uh, on what I just talked about the aggression in the game and that rivalry that's been uh, developing uh, in particular. Just on the first point, the body stuff. Look, it's not so much the on court body stuff. I mean, look, I used to hate the way that someone dogs you would tap you on the backside, and you know, I'd want to ram that over his bloody ass. Basically, that he did that to me. Um, but then he hugs you and stuff, and he's always when he's won a match. When he's lost, he's bloody storming off down the corridor. Went speaking for an hour and a half, you know. Um, I don't like that. Um, look, shake hands, good chance shake. I don't particularly like their South celebration stuff. It's, it's disrespectful when it's over the top. Um, but the buddy buddy stuff, all nice. I don't like that. I don't like the fact in Jews. I'd like to say what they think. Everyone says that when they win, oh, he played brilliantly. Well, actually, they played like a pile of shit sometimes. Just say the guy was terrible. Um, you know, I, I didn't play that well, but he was even worse. Just to be honest, he's no one's honest. But one thing I like about Mohammed, like him or not, um, love him or hate him, he's honest. You know, he says things. He said something about me recently to Walter with Dr. Black. Couldn't Sorry, who, who was that, Rob? Mohammed. You know, yeah, he yeah. said a few about me recently to you. That, that's fine. I don't know, but I like Mohammed. Um, he wears his heart on his sleeve. Um, it made me chuckle to myself because that was the reaction I'd hoped for. Um, that's why I said it. Um, and I loved it really, it was great because it showed me that I'd sort of got to him that way. Um, but uh, he, wears, he says what he thinks a little bit, I like that. Um, there's too many guys not saying what I think, girls as well. Oh, it was a great final, it's, the, it's bloody boring. Every speech afterwards is exactly the same. Yeah. It drives me crackers. Just say what you think, talk about it, make yourself interesting, or have some character that's we lacking characters. And I want people to say what they think about the sort of about the match. Well, Rob, if you don't mind me if, interrupting you, sorry for, for interrupting. Uh, just to just to go back uh, because I do I remember what uh, that situation where Mohammed uh, was upset with something that you said. Could you just revisit that just briefly? What what was the incident there? Look, I mean, I wrote an article um, basically um, saying that if Paul played his very best, he was the best player in the world and would win, would beat everyone. Um, and that was a fact at the time. Um, obviously, Mohammed didn't beat, beat him, um, which is fine. Um, you know, Paul didn't play his best. There's a few issues. I mean, I think Mohammed would agree that, you know, there's a bit of blocking going on. Probably a bit fortunate. I also said a few things about Mohammed. I think he was quite the player he was. He isn't quite the player he was. Um, look, I, I like Mohammed a lot, by the way. Um, but, you know, I love that conversation. But, uh, and I would, no one was more pleased than me to see Mohammed back, by the way, as well. You know, I really was. He's good for the game. I wanted to come back. Over the last two years, he had been poor. Um, physically, he wasn't as good. I was also right because he was, after that match with Paul, he then lost because he was basically tired. He should have won the final. Um, but, he, you know, he's got a proving play three matches in a row. And that's basically what I called it as I saw it. Um, and we need more people calling to say it. Um, and I sort of, I was well aware of what I said. There was a reason behind it. I went and draw these as what I said, what I said. Paul was fine with it. 
Um, and I think, you know, people were interested. They liked to see what you say. It wasn't, there was no arrogance behind it. It was a purely factual statement. I mean, obviously, Paul had beaten that. Ali, I think he'd won the last 10 games they played before that. He'd won nine and Ali had won one. You know, playing well, he clearly had the better of these guys. He'd beaten them all. He was the first guy since you hanged with the British Open three noughts every match um, for 40 years. So um, it was just a pretty factual statement. Um, I always try and, you know, put stuff out there. So I think there should be more stuff out there a little bit. There's not enough. And people are interested in my views. Um, and I think most of my views are proven up with fa- are proven by facts. Well, I think, uh, Rob, that's pure gold right there. Again, uh, that's something we don't see a lot in squash. We see people commenting on, uh, even on our on our websites, the squash sites and the squash. Uh, Matt, squash Matt's pretty good at, at uh, opinion kind of stuff, but uh, we don't. It's not like you would go on, uh, like when you watch an ESPN guys talking about football and they just slag uh, so many players and coaches. You never, ever really see that uh, in squash. It's just, I guess it's not big enough, but uh, obviously. Again, let me just, let me just quantify that. I'm not there to slag anybody off. You know, I wasn't slagging Mohammed off in any way. You know, I say no one's right. more happy to see no, you know, not, I didn't mean that, yeah. No, I know, I know you didn't, but that's how it could come across. So I want to qualify that. It's not what I'm trying to do. Um, I'm trying to give people insight into what goes on behind the scenes, insight into matches, which, you know, I'm a professional gambler. I get most things right. I've made a living out of getting things right and being better than everyone else. You don't know anybody else who's a professional gambler. There's no other squash player that's done it. I've made millions of pounds betting on sports. So I get a lot of things right. So, you know, whatever people think, they might think that's a bit arrogant. That's another fact. Um, and I have a view, and I'm, I don't mind expressing that view. I think it's good people express views, and most of my views are very thought out before I say them. I don't, I don't say things to say the same things. If I do, it's because I'm having a bit of a laugh and a joke, and people don't sometimes see that sense of humor, because I do believe it or not, occasionally have a sense of humor, and people smile. Um, but I mean, you know, they're thought out, and they're, they're basically factually based. I don't know about something. I want to see how to do open heart surgery tomorrow, Jerry. There'll be you'll meet people who tell you how to do it, how to do open heart surgery tomorrow, and just bullshit the way through life, and yeah. you know, fuck all about it. You know, um, I'm not one of those guys. You know, if I if I know how to do something, I'll tell you, and I won't tell you how to do it unless I'm pretty sure I know 100 percent I'm right on it, and that's the way I talk. Mm. Now, uh, just wondering, uh, just to get back to the previous question, uh, what are your thoughts on the no, uh, Hamami? Uh, I mean, what what happened at the end of last season with the ball? Uh, where, where Gohar just hammered Hamami with the ball and really didn't uh, apologize. At the end of all their matches, they never really look at each other. They just walk off the court. Uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's box office stuff every time they play. Look, at the end of the day, they clearly don't like each other. Uh, that's fine. I think it's important you have a bit of respect in some ways, which is it's just for squash. My life as a person have some respect for squash. The incident happened. I had sympathy with Gohar, um, quite simply because... She had an instant early in the match. You have to take these things in context. She had an instant early in the match where she hadn't played the ball and had got no let. So in her mind, she was straight away thinking, look, I need to play the next one. The mistake she made was absolutely welting the ball as hard as she possibly could. But she doesn't like her. And that was a mistake. She shouldn't have done that. She should have tapped her if she's going to do that. So the referee was at fault again. That's a situation called the referee with giving no let. Um, Hanya was moving across. I like, by the way, I love the way both those girls play. Hanya, to me, is one of the fairest people I've seen girls play in 20 years. Massive respect for her honesty. I've seen her play Naila a lot. I've seen her play lots of girls. She calls every ball down. She plays every ball she can. So I've got massive respect. But on that occasion, she was coming across the middle quite a lot. Um, and and Gohar wasn't able to play a cross-court shot. Um, 
obviously it was it was unfortunate as well because it was it was game ball, Jerry. People don't really talk about that. And as a result, she was able to walk off the court. If it hadn't been game ball, I'm pretty sure she'd gone over to her and checked she was okay. It just happened that she held her hand up very briefly. A very brief story, which wasn't good enough, to be quite frank. And she'll probably think you know, I'd say it wasn't good enough. She should have gone over to her, checked she was okay and said sorry. And, you know, at least made it look like she actually was sorry. Um, I mean, she nearly, the ball nearly went through her leg, didn't it? Um, there was almost yeah, a bloody hole in it. Yeah. And it was brutal and it didn't look good for sport in that way. Um, she should have had a conduct point or um, something like that against the four lads. But again, I think referees, is it down to referees, let's have some clear parameters. Mm. Is, the curse, is the person moving in front of the moving across too far? In that case, it's a stroke and they're not clearing it. Um, can the person, should the person at the back be playing it, in which case it's a no let? And then there's situations where it's a let. So we need clear parameters on that to actually watch what's happening so that players don't have to play it. I always think we should change the rule, Jerry. So I think if someone hits the ball and it's on purpose, um, I've seen Joel do it a few times, he's hit people on purpose to get a stroke. That's wrong. That should be let. And I'm not just Joel, but I've seen several people do it. Um, that's wrong. And you shouldn't just tap the ball into people and get a stroke because you can. That's the rule. That should be a, that should be a let. If someone, if you tap the ball and they are completely deliberately standing in front of you, yes, that is a stroke. But if you're doing it to try and actually search for somebody and you're playing cross-court and wasn't really a cross-court and you're giving a stroke, that the rule's wrong there. Change that. Because that encourages people to hit the ball. And if you hit the ball and get a stroke, certain people are going to use that and you just, just get a stroke. It's a cheap stroke on game balls, isn't it? And, you know, some people would never do that. And I like the fact, when I, when people, I, when I hit people with the ball, um, I used to say, play less. I, I, wouldn't, I refuse to take a stroke. That's yeah. one thing I always did. I refused to take a stroke. I always played a less. Well, that's not quite a less. Probably two people I would actually took a stroke and hit on purpose. But I mean, there's only a couple of people. We don't need to talk about that. No. But most people, I would say, I'd play a less. It was an accident and you do, you're not trying to hit somebody. And I'd like all players to do that. I think it's a, a really nice thing to do. And the players should take control of that themselves, is my view. Yeah, I guess, I guess the, the simple fact that she hammered that ball, I mean, she... <laughs> I, I spoke to her about it, and she, she says that, uh, you know, it happened so quickly, I didn't know that I would hit her with the ball. And she, she seemed to be fairly forthright. Yeah, look, I don't really believe that. I mean, that she's too good for that. It, it, she's not as good a player as I thought in that case, because um, she's bloody accurate, she's more hard, so she knew where she was. She knew yeah, she was yeah. going to hit her. She, look, she basically may not have actually meant to hit her, but she knew she was going to go close, and she yeah. hit it as hard as she could. So whether she meant to or not is irrelevant. That ball was going within millimetres of the leg and she absolutely thumped it. Um, I understood why she did it. It was a bit of a red mist moment for her. There was a lot of frustration there. She doesn't like the girl. They don't get on. Um, you know, there's been a few instances with them falling over and this and that and clashes off the court, on the court, you name it. As you said, it's box office stuff in some ways. Um, but let's hope it doesn't spill over into anything else because we don't want that. And they're two brilliant squash players. And it's a brilliant match they play. Absolutely. The, the, the last match they played when uh, uh, Hanya won that one in, uh, in Cairo, uh, she, she just played brilliantly. And you can see she's worked really hard over the summer. Her movement's incredible now. She's, like, she's fast. She's strong. Uh, she, she plays that basic game that she has really, really well. And she can be deceptive too. So it bodes well, I think, for her and the rest of the women's game. Uh, it's exciting stuff. The women's game is getting better and better. You know, it's um, the men's had a sort of golden period five years ago, and the women's is in a golden period now. We've lost Raneem and a couple of great players, 
but they, they just need to be replaced tomorrow today. You know, the, the World Junior Champion was very young. There was eight, I watched the Women's World Juniors, there was eight exceptional players in the quarterfinals. Um, and it's just, it's just getting better and better. And, and from all over the world as well, I know there's a lot of good Egyptian players, but there are players from America, um, from Europe, uh, from all over the world coming in and competing, which is, again, that's very good for game and something we're not quite seeing in the men's at the moment. Well, Rob, uh, you've been tremendous with your time, but uh, you know, before you go, I wanted to, I want to talk about uh, growing the game a little bit, and that's something that I, I like to uh, to do a bit on the, the the podcast here. I've had a few people on to talk about, it, but you've put together uh, independent squash minds, which is all about growing the game. Uh, you've uh, got assembled uh, Nick Matthew, Laura Macero, Peter Marshall, and uh, Danny Lee, uh, and you guys are sort of a uh, in a broad sense, uh, uh, trying to put your efforts towards growing the game, which is huge these days because squash is struggling at the moment, as we know. So just wondering uh, uh, if you could flesh that out a little bit for us. What is uh, uh, independent squash minds and how are things uh, developing at this point? Look, it was a group I formed um, initially because I felt there was no real independent body. Um, you talk to PSA, you talk to Swash or WSF, you talk to Australia Swash, whoever it might be. Um, everyone has their own little agenda, I felt, a little bit, you know, which is, which is what they're doing. That's their aim and that's their mission statement. And I felt that in a sort of advisory capacity, we had a lot of views and strong characters there. Um, it certainly wasn't the Rob Owen show. I mean, you know, Nick, Laura... They've been great chums themselves. They're, they're current players, virtually current players. Um, you know, they think differently than I do. Peter Marshall is in business. He thinks differently. Um, Danny Lee, uh, you know, he's done some fantastic promotional work. And I just felt it was a group of people that collectively we could make a difference. And that, that difference was it might be just people talking to us, coming to us for advice, helping people. It might be promoting the sports, um, promoting clubs, promoting association. Um, it might be we've done some work with PSA. You know, we're, we strongly advocated weekly rankings. We'd like to think we had an influence on that, um, which has recently come in. I felt that tennis did it. I felt it creates more interest. Also, you see that Ali was World and One last week. Now, Paul's gone back to World and One. That wouldn't have happened on a monthly ranking. Now, who's going to be World and One next week after uh, US Open? We talk yeah. about that sort of stuff. So that's great. And we had a direct influence on that. PSA had this, get me straight, PSA had it on their agenda, but we pushed it along. Um, men's and women's rank, rankings in England squash, which you hadn't had for 20 odd years. Um, we felt that was important, um, really pushed that hard, and that just came into fruition. Um, so that now the young kids, well, if you're number four in England, you suddenly went from number four in England juniors to nothing, there was nothing, and now that void's been filled. And you know, there's an England rank you see yourself, it might be 65, but then you're playing your matches, and you, you go from 65 to 55, and there's a, there's a pathway and a progression there, uh, which, unless you're an exceptional junior, where you go straight into world rankings isn't there. So that's something we've done. We, we had a meeting with Squash United um, a couple of weeks ago, um, which is a charity which, which promotes school in private areas. They put up mini squash courts. They've built eight so far, doing a brilliant job. We're going to help try and help promote that. Um, so we're doing helping a number of areas. Um, and we speak all the time. Um, we have a Zoom course. We have a meeting face-to-face -face every three months. We invite a guest, and the guest will be heading to the sport. Um, you know, we've tried and diversify as much as we can. You know, something we're talking about at the moment is diversity in, in uh, commentators. I've advocated for a long time. I'd love to see some Egyptian commentators. Um, I think that's really important. I think uh, they're the best, you know, in the sport. I mean, they're mainly Egyptians in the top 20 in both men's and women. Um, and yet we have no Egyptian commentators. And that's not often the guys at the moment. But I think it's, it's very important to have diversity. People are playing. 
and just of a mix. You know, sometimes it can feel like a bit of a boys' club, the commentary. Um, professionalize it, get more people doing it. Some people love the commentary. I, I have a lot of people saying they hate the commentary. Some people hate nicknames. I know you hate nicknames. You don't like them. Some people love nicknames. Um, but, it, but, you know, there's always improvements we can make. And if we can make suggestions and improve things, and to emphasise that, we want to work with people, never against people. We want to come and say, we want, we want to do that, or we did this. We're all trying to work with people. And so far, we've had a great response. PSA have been brilliant. Um, the the um, directors there, you know, the um, Lee Beach or Tommy Burton, Alex Goff have been fantastic. We've had meetings with them. England squash, Mark Williams. We've got, we're going to meet WSF. You know, all these different sort of bodies, all these different people we're meeting. We're open to ideas all the time. Anybody can contact us. Um, we're just there to try and help and build things up. Um, and, you know, we appreciate the sport. We all love the sport. You know, all the, all the other members of that board have been absolutely fantastic in you know, all of them. Um, they're just so passionate about that, that sport. And I've, I feel five of us together have a stronger voice than just me saying something or Nick Matthews saying something or Laura on our own. Five of us together is quite a strong voice and people listen. Um, you know, and sometimes I might not agree with Nick and I'm sure there's plenty of times Laura doesn't agree with me on something. But collectively, we tend to agree. And actually, it's been interesting because fundamentally, we, we tend to have the same beliefs really when actually put it together we had initial sort of differences and things but we've really enjoyed the process working together and you know we're, we're now seeing the fruition of what we started doing 40 months ago people won't see because all the work we do is in the bonnet but there's things out there that happens that we've been instrumental in which is nice yeah well it's great that, that you've assemb assembled such a great group of uh people there and that's going to be influential in terms of getting things done there i think there are there are a lot of people trying to grow the game and, and they they find it difficult to get traction. So with you guys working uh, together, uh, the, the, the group that you have, uh, I think it might, you know, definitely bode well. Yeah, look, I mean, I, we, we just, it, it, it might be helping the sponsor things, you know, and, and while I talk about sponsors and stuff, I mean, we, we all appreciate people that put money into the game. And I think that's not, again, I, Brushing it earlier, but you know, people, CIB Bank and all the great sponsors. I, I met Rory Gillen, who's a smashing fella earlier, uh, from the sponsor Kerry Wharf. I mean, I don't think some of these guys get enough sort of, you know, passing them back. Um, I've said a, a, a beer Ray, who's just the nicest guy you can meet, put a lot of money into squash with Expression Networks, and uh, he's just been brilliant. He just sponsored my academy, you know, and without people like that, you know, it, it helps me, you know, um, you know, he's helped me, uh, it, he'll the flights and things I like to go to these tournaments support my players. Um, he supports my players. So he's supporting young players like Jonah Bryant and Katie Mallet and maybe Sam or someone. And it might just be a little bit of help. Um, but that's really appreciated. And without that, these guys couldn't play the sport. You know, helps massively. He helps Paul and Nolan. He's got about 20 players. He helps. Extraordinary. Um, Donald have just done a thing for me. They've just done this great um, montage at the club. You know, big corridor with great players and they, they put all the courts at Jonah Barrington courts. Um, you know, I've just sort of done some work with Donlop and they've helped me massively. So all these people around the sort of periphery that are helping players and academies and coaching groups, you know, that's helping to grow the sport. Um, but we need to get more people in and more sponsors. And again, that's what we're trying to do as a group, to get more people into sport. An umbrella sponsor, you know, tour sponsor, um, you know, hopefully. I think I think PSA are looking at trying to get something along those lines. That will make a big difference, you know, to help with things like funding a referees. Um, to, to professionalise the TV, can we have a, um, a panel in for post-match managers of a match? To me, you've got two or three people talking about a match before. You go to the commentary team, 
the commentary team aren't then running down the stairs to then do the post-match analysis. You have a, you go back to that um, uh, post-match, the pre-match uh, commentary um, expert panel, and you do they do the post team. things like that. We haven't got the money in the sport to do that. So if we can get more funding into sports, then whether it be through sort of governing bodies through Sports England and whoever the federations are, all through private corporate sponsorship, or people like our group trying to get sponsors to the game. That, that's important and you know it's a big thank you to all the people who currently are helping us speak what I mentioned um, because without them some of us couldn't be here I mean I don't you know I, I, squash for me is a big loss maker and I'm not the only one there's been plenty of people out there volunteering doing it they're not being paid they're doing it because they love the sport um, and sometimes people just need a little bit of help um, so you know I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and it's, I think it's really important not many people talk about the people who are helping us and I couldn't do what I do. You know, some friends of mine, Phil and Barbara Evans, they sponsored the academy starts. Um, and they helped pay, buy players' flights. You know, none of the players have probably even spoke to them for 10 years, some half of them, because it's forgotten. But I appreciate that. They were brilliant when they first came in. And they put a lot of money into the academy. They helped set it up. And they paid for flights and things and physiotherapy. And they paid essence, strength, condition, this sort of stuff. And we need people like that. Um, I think it's really important for sport. And all the clubs have it, and these clubs who pay players and stuff, they have a sponsor. Um, and it, by me, certainly, it's very, very much appreciated. Well, we want to keep up the good fight, don't we, Rob? So keep, keep up the good fight with that regard. And uh, you've been uh, tremendous uh, with your time today. Um, I think we've uh, just about covered everything. Um, and I'd love to do this again uh, going uh, one of these days down the road, maybe towards the end of the year uh, if we have time. But, uh, Rob, really appreciate your time today. That was fantastic. Uh, the documentary uh, is uh, If I Was a Betting Man. It's on squash, uh, squash Skills, and I recommend everybody get out there and listen to it or, or watch it. And uh, also, Rob, all the best with you, your team in Philly. It's going to be exciting stuff to see you there, uh, coaching the guys in between games. You'll be you'll be making that walk down uh, to to coach the guys in between games, right? I'll be there. Yeah, I've um, I've lost a bit of weight actually. I've been on diet for the last three months. And I think I've lost two pounds, so I'll be looking fantastic. <laughs> well, uh, many thanks, Rob, and uh, really appreciate it. Thank you, Jerry. Much appreciated. Thank you. Well, many, many thanks to Rob Owen for that episode 233. It doesn't get much better than that content, uh, unlike you've heard bef uh, before on this podcast, I think. And I want to thank uh, Rob Owen very much for his time. I pestered him quite a while for this. And uh, it's a second appearance, as many of you might know. And uh, again, thanks to him for taking the time out. It was really uh, well worth it, that's for sure. And look forward to having him back on again in the near future. And I want to thank all of you for your time uh, listening to the pod. We've got some good ones coming up. Camille Serum is coming up very soon. Uh, we just actually just did the podcast yesterday. We're going to catch up with her to see how PSA retirement's been treating her. She's got a lot on her plate, so you're going to enjoy that. And uh, we've got Gina Kennedy, inshallah, coming up. Alan Klein also coming up. We've got uh, Cleve Miller from Open Squash coming up very soon as well. We've got plenty on the plate here on the In Squash podcast, so stay tuned for those episodes and more. Again, thanks, uh, everyone, for listening. I hope you're healthy. hope you're well. All the best with your squash. Goodbye now. <laughs>